G'day wherever you may be around the world and thank you for your company once again on truthtoyou.org. That's truth2letteryou.org. Joining me is the Director of Education and Counselling for Jews for Judaism Canada. The website is jewsforjudaism.ca. Jewsforjudaism.ca. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Skoback. It is so good to be here, Jono. Just finishing up Purim here in North America. How was your Purim? It was delightful. It was great. I just was at two parties tonight and uh, <clears throat> the only thing I didn't do that I was supposed to do was drink um, yeah I was going to say you're a little bit sober to be at two, <laughs> two parties <laughs> I'm not much of a drinker that's just as well <laughs> I, like, I like to get the good vibes just from being with people and having a good time so that was good well I'm, I'm glad that you are clear headed my friend because we are continuing to investigate the alleged 365 messianic prophecies in the Tanakh that Jesus supposedly fulfilled in the New Testament this is part 2 isn't it part 2 of Isaiah chapter 53 which on the original list spans from numbers 228 to 270 oh my goodness and now in part one of Isaiah 53, we looked at the Christian claim that Jesus was the uh, suffering servant. Do you want to recap uh, on what we did last time? Well, I think it's important because, uh, you know, th- this passage, I think you mentioned, is really the, the go-to passage for mm-hmm. Christians who are trying to advance their case for Jesus being the Messiah. And, um, you know, it, it, it's interesting because kind of, it, it's different than almost all the other passages we looked at. Because when you think about it, almost everything else was a verse that sort of yanked out of the middle of a passage, the middle of a chapter. Mm. And here's really the first time, the only time, that you have an entire chapter of the Bible that is, you know, it's all there, it's in context. Um, So it it does have a little bit more gravitas, I would say, a little more significance than, you know, uh, passages where something is just yanked out of the middle of a chapter. Mm-hmm. And there's no context, so this is, you know, it's it's a it's a big topic because it's, it's we're handling a lot of material here, and <clears throat> what I, we tried to do last time was just really sort of review why the Christian, the, the classical Christian interpretation of this passage is problematic, meaning that there are certain uh, fault lines, I would say, with their interpretation. One was that again they're reading this as a messianic prophecy. And the, the big question, I would say, that you know, the main question is: Is this really and clearly? That's the important point. Um, is it really clearly uh, a messianic prophecy? You know, we we know that in the Tanakh there are passages which are indisputably and clearly messianic prophecies that are clearly speaking about the person of the Messiah, and we know that it's clear because everybody agrees. There's no dis- disagreement. Um, this passage is not clearly a messianic prophecy. We mentioned that in the first century, the, the very followers of Yeshua, of Jesus, did not see this passage as a messianic prophecy. They did not expect the Messiah to be suffering or dying or mm-hmm. etc., being a sacrifice. Um, we know that in contemporary times, we know that today there are literally dozens and dozens of uh, respected Christian scholars and Bible commentaries who don't see this as a messianic prophecy. So to me, one thing that is you know just front and center is that if serious Christians for the past two thousand years have not uh, automatically seen this as a messianic prophecy, then I would say it's hard to go to the bank with this. It's hard to mm-hmm. you know if you're in a courtroom t- to wheel this out as you know very very solid evidence. So that's one thing to bear in mind. You know we saw that. Uh, classically or typically, messianic prophecies in the Bible have certain textual indicators or textual clues. They all speak about uh, someone as a king, as a descendant of David. Uh, and we saw that there is sort of a, a composite that's made up of you know about a dozen passages that appear throughout the Hebrew Scriptures that really paint the same picture of this wise and righteous descendant of King David who will rule as the king of Israel at a time when the world has been perfected into a utopia of universal peace and universal knowledge mm-hmm. of God. That's the only clear picture of the Bible. Um, and there's nothing else in the Bible, by the way. There's not one verse that speaks about any descendant of David who's going to come and do something else. And so th- this whole idea that this chapter is describing the death and suffering, the atoning death and suffering of the Messiah is... 
not just unclear, but there's no corroboration, meaning there's no clearly developed theme throughout the Bible that we see repeated in many, many places that give this picture. This would be the only place. And I think that's a major weakness when, A, it's not clear that it's messianic, and B, it's not a consistently painted picture. Uh, we're going to see that, as, as we saw this last time, that as we try to plug Jesus into these verses, it just doesn't fit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the passages speak about a, a, a person or, a, or people that will be uh, widely despised and rejected, not just by a few people, you know, for a short period of time um, in the servant's career. But the, the, the prophet here, Isaiah, describes the servant as his entire essence of his life, his career, was one of rejection and mm. being despised and hated. We saw that in the Gospels, Jesus is really portrayed as being extremely popular. So we saw that as you go through the text of Isaiah 53, um, Jesus doesn't really fit. You know, the prophets about the servant living a long life and having children, physical children. Mm. Um, yeah, verse, uh, verse 10, exactly. that he shall see his seed, his, his physical offspring. And of yeah. course, he didn't have any physical offspring, neither did he have a prolonged life. He supposedly died uh, in his early 30s. Yeah. Um, and I, I remember another compelling verse that you wrote, uh, actually the uh, latter verses of Isaiah chapter 52, which is part of this narrative, that so shall he startle many nations, as opposed to saying so shall he startle the Jews. I mean, if, if Jesus, if this passage is talking about Jesus, it certainly would be the Jews that would be startled and surprised, not the many nations. I, I remember another compelling verse, uh, of course, is uh, verse 9. You pointed out that where it says uh, uh, they made his grave with the wicked, but the rich at his death. And the word death, as my uh, New King James admits, and you highlighted, is in fact plural, deaths. And so things like that were really quite compelling. Right. And there was also, there was, there was uh, the passage, I think it's in verse 8, you see that the suffering is not something that uh, is suffered by an individual, but by a group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the literal translation is, through the transgression of my people, they were afflicted. So, they. so it's, right. a, it's a group of people. That's why they go through many kinds of death. And it's interesting also, Isaiah here says that through the servant's knowledge, people will be uh, basically uh-huh. caused to be just. And really, if it was talking about Jesus, it should have said through his blood. My servant will justify the many. So the problems here are that, number one, this passage in Isaiah is just simply, uh, we, look, we can understand how a Christian could see uh, this, you know, sounding like Jesus. That's, that's certainly not the, the problem. The question is, you know, if, if someone was studying this passage before Jesus, would they automatically assume that it was a messianic prophecy? That's a, a, it's, a, it's a problem. And, and number two... Even if we were to say that this is a messianic prophecy, you know, how does it really clearly identify Jesus? It would simply be talking about someone or some group that would be suffering, but it doesn't necessarily identify Jesus of Nazareth. And as we just said, many of the passages here, many of the verses seem to exclude him. Mm. So that would be a second thing for us to just recall. And, and thirdly, I think we, we just ended on this point last week was that the whole theological enterprise here, the whole theological approach, is just one that is uh, out of step with the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures, meaning the idea Mm. that the Messiah, the role of the Messiah as coming to die as a sacrifice for the sins of those who would believe in him is is very problematic because uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures, just one of the most major themes that's developed is the idea that <clears throat> we have to basically uh, take care of our own sins. That, uh, number one, you don't have an innocent person that suffers because of the sins of a guilty person. Mm. So the whole theme of vicarious uh, Suffer. suffering is just, it, it runs against the fabric of the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, and more importantly, the Hebrew Scriptures, just every, almost every single book in the Bible points to the idea that we have the ability to atone for and repent for our own sins and to receive mm. uh, a thorough cleansing and a thorough forgiveness. And uh, so the idea that we need someone to bear our sins and we need someone to die for our sins is just sort of 
it, it's dissonant. It doesn't it doesn't harmonize with the entire thrust of the Hebrew Scriptures, which really takes us to this whole other dispute between Christianity and Judaism, which is you know are human beings able to uh, rise over their sinfulness? Are we able to live lives that are pleasing to God? Can we be good? Can we be righteous? Do we have the ability to overcome our sinful nature? Do we have the ability to uh, atone for our sins by repenting and returning to God if we do sin? Uh, Mm. Christianity seems to insist that we can't. Because as Paul says in Galatians, if we could, then Jesus died in vain. Meaning that the whole premise of this Christian view of what the Messiah does is based upon the assumption that we can't do it. So if we can't do it, then God has to step in and do it for us. But I think that it's very clear in the Hebrew scriptures that, no, we are able to uh, overcome sin. It says that right in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, that sin will always be at your door to tempt you, but you can rule over it, as God says. Mm. Uh, and then throughout the Bible, you know, God says in Deuteronomy 30, that I place before you life and death, blessing and curse, choose life. And then God says to us that the ability and, and the our, our capability of observing his law, his commandments, is not beyond our capability. It's not up in the heavens. It's not beyond the seas. God mm. says it's near to us in our mouth and in our hearts that we can do it. Do it. Um, so I think that's a third problem with this uh, Christological reading of Isaiah 53 is that it's simply um, it, it, it's, it's not consistent with this major piece of the Bible's theology. Now, I will throw in a a very quick thank you again to Sophie. Sophie, the truth to you comment queen uh, of the Facebook page, Judaism is not Christianity minus Jesus. Judaism is not Christianity minus Jesus. I, I highly recommend people find that page on Facebook and like it because she, Rabbi Skobek, engaged primarily with Dave. And thank you to Dave for all the comments that you left as well. On last week's program, uh, I don't know, there's something like 53 comments on this program on, of Isaiah 53, and <laughs> it goes back and forth. And not only are they are they all there, but they're really quite detailed. There's some uh, very, uh, very good questions raised and very detailed answers, and uh, Sophie is to thank for a lot of those. So thank you again, Sophie, who touches on uh, so much of what we spoke about in detail, and uh, some of which you just mentioned. Hats and yarmulkes and hats off to Sophie again. Again, now this week you were wanting to. Uh, we are wanting to focus on the original understanding of, of Isaiah fifty three. If Isaiah fifty three uh, is not about the Messiah, if Isaiah if the suffer if the suffering servant is not Jesus, well, who then? What? What is this about? How is how is it traditionally understood? What is the historical understanding of this passage? That's what we want to touch on. And it's actually not so simple because you know people who are students of the Bible will know that. There may be multiple ways of actually understanding uh, a passage. Even according to uh, you know one approach, there may be several ways of shading it. Um, so I don't want to oversimplify this passage. It is quite complex, and you know you could really study this deeply for a long time. But I think we'll begin with what is suggested by. Uh, you know, literally, you know, dozens and dozens of Christian commentaries to the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I picked up an old book once. Uh, it's a Christian book called The, the uh, Suffering Servant of Isaiah. And, uh, you know, they interestingly, they, they have, I think, at least 15 different uh, interpretations of who the servant might be um, through, through the, basically the 19th and 20th century uh, biblical scholars, um, mm-hmm. which to me is interesting because if you have 14 or 15 possibilities of who the servant might be, um, it's hard to say that Jesus is a slam dunk. Um, but the, the, there are about 50 that I counted uh, just in this book, 50 scholars who uh, understand that the servant here is uh, Israel or at least the righteous of Israel. Right. And I think that there are two major reasons why this is suggested, but we'll see as we go through tonight that there are really even stronger reasons. But I think the first reason is that, <clears throat> you know, Isaiah did not write his book starting with chapter 53. 
Um, so, unfortunately, when people, uh, you know, focus so much on this chapter in Isaiah, you know, it often comes with a, a um, ignoring of the previous chapters. And mm-hmm. this is the fourth of these famous poems that are called the servant songs. There are mm-hmm. really four poems, songs in Isaiah about the servant of the Lord. And you have numerous times where Isaiah specifically and uh, explicitly identifies the servant as Israel. Um, mm. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 41, the prophet says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts, and I said to you, you are my servant, and I have chosen you and not rejected you. Or Isaiah chapter 44 in verses 1 and 2. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, Yeshurun, whom I have chosen. And then if in verse 21 in that chapter, Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. And so you have this repetition in chapter 45, in chapter 43, in chapter 49, in chapter 48. Uh, There's this repetitive emphasis that the servant uh, of the Lord is Israel. And by Mm -hmm. the way, it's interesting that it appears in many other books of the Bible. In the book of Leviticus, the Jewish people are called God's servants. In the prophet, uh, in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah. In many of the, in the, in several of the Psalms, in the book of Deuteronomy, um, I think even there's a, a verse in Luke. I think it's Luke chapter one, verse fifty-four. Yes, you mentioned that last week. That's right. Where where Israel is referred to as God's, God's servant. servant. Uh, hmm. So in, in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, uh, especially Jeremiah chapter thirty, where the reference to Jacob, my servant, Jeremiah chapter thirty, verse ten, is in a passage which is very similar to the the context of Isaiah 53. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's something where once you get to Isaiah 53 and it's speaking about God's servant, you certainly would have some reason to suspect, well, if we've been told dozens of times that the servant is Israel, maybe that's you know, reasonable here. And then there's something else, <clears throat> that when you get to the actual passages that are very, very close to the one we're studying, if you look, for example, at chapter 52 of Isaiah, so there, uh, we're not going to have time to study it tonight, it's worth studying, but chapter 52 um, is a, an interesting chapter because it really is a chapter of contrasts, meaning that you go through the entire chapter and it's contrasting the historical suffering of the Jewish people of Israel to their future redemption and exaltation. I mean, so you have this chapter where it's sort of va- it it it, it uh, goes back and forth. It oscillates between these two uh, modalities: that Israel as uh, suffering, Israel as persecuted, Israel as oppressed, Israel as despised, etc. And then it speaks about being lifted up and being raised very high and being you know singing, etc. Uh, their their salvation that'll be. Um, seen by the nations of the world in verse 10 of chapter 52 the Lord has buried his holy arm before the eyes of the nations and all the ends mm. of the earth will see the salvation of our God um, here you see that salvation is visible you can see it and it speaks here about God bearing his holy arm which is a passage we're going to see that God's arm is repeated in chapter 53 so here in chapter 52 you have a whole chapter the whole chapter deals with the historical suffering of Israel and their ultimate redemption. And then, if you just go to the next chapter, after the one we're studying, chapter 54, the same exact uh, dynamic. It it begins by speaking about the suffering, the um, difficulties that are faced by the nation of Israel who are compared, there's a a simile here, uh, we're compared to a barren woman who does not Mm. have children, uh, desolate, um, but then the prophet says, but you know what? You're going to have so many children, you're going to have to make your tents bigger, you're going to have to take those mm. stakes and pick them up and move them, you're going to be, you're going to spread out. And you see very quickly that it's not speaking about a particular woman, but the woman here 
is a metaphor, a simile for the people of Israel. And the prophet actually comes out and says it in verse 5, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. So you have in this chapter also this incredible uh, comparison where the, the nation of Israel is forsaken. We are uh, a, a people that are beaten down. Uh, we're persecuted. We're, we're, he describes us as afflicted, storm-tossed, not comforted. That's, that's mm. how the prophet speaks about us in verse 11. But then we're told, but uh, we're going to be having our stones set in antimony and our foundations with sapphires. And our pinnacles will be made with rubies and gates will be mm. with jewels. So and as it says in verse 8, that uh, it says, but with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Even though I hid my face from you, right? Mm. There are two things going on. Mm. And then it's, the chapter ends by saying, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Here it actually takes the, the phrase servant of the Lord and makes it clear mm. that it's not an individual. Well, at the very end of chapter 54, verse 17, right, this whole chapter, which has been speaking about the historical suffering of the Jewish people, but their ultimate redemption. So God says, the prophet at the end of the chapter, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication for me, says the Lord. Um, so when you study the book of Isaiah, you have all these chapters where the prophet explicitly tells you the servant is Israel. Then you have the two chapters surrounding Isaiah 53 and basically talking about the historical suffering of Israel and contrasting that to their future redemption. It should give you some clue that, well, maybe chapter 53 is similarly speaking about Israel, about their uh, historical persecution, mm. and their ultimate redemption and exaltation. I think those are, are two of the major reasons why so many Christian commentaries say this chapter, Isaiah 53, is about Israel. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, it's so clear that... Uh, it's compelling. I think it's, it, we'll see tonight it's even more compelling because what I think is the most important uh, piece of evidence, I'll call it, is that we're going to see that when we, we saw this last time we spoke, that when you try to plug Jesus into this chapter, you don't find that it's a reading that's consistent with the rest of the Bible. For example, you know, the, the, the Christological reading would say that the Messiah is, by definition, despised and rejected and hated and suffering. Mm -hmm. Well, the question is, how often does the Bible describe the Messiah as despised and rejected and suffering. Um, it's not throughout the Bible. It's basically here. This is it. Whereas, if you're talking about Israel, the Bible speaks about the s historical suffering of Israel. It comes up all the time. Um, so, th the reading of Israel here, we're going to see, is supported basically in every single verse by corroborative passages that appear throughout the Bible. And that's going to be, I think, extremely important because that does not uh, obtain when we try to squeeze Jesus into this passage. You can't find supportive, corroborative passages from elsewhere in the Bible that supports that kind of Christological reading. Mm -hmm. But we'll see that, that uh, when we think about this chapter as describing the, uh, the legacy of, of the people of Israel, that really fits in very, very smoothly and neatly with the way that this theme is discussed in the rest of the Bible. We, we began last week by pointing out that everyone reads chapter 53, uh, understanding correctly that the, the passage really begins three verses earlier. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> there we saw that at the end of chapter 52, it's God that is speaking. And God yep. speaks about his servant. God says, behold, or see, my servant will prosper. Mm -hmm. And God says here that the um, the Jewish people will be exalted, lifted up, and raised very high. Now, <clears throat> is that something which the Bible speaks about? So, you know, any student of the Bible will know that this is a major theme of the Bible, that the Jewish people at the end of history, at the climax of history, will be um, recognized by the entire world and will achieve a tremendous level of 
respect among the nations of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's again, it's it's a theme that is corroborated uh, throughout the Bible. And, and I, what I would do, I think the the most helpful um, passages to look at. I mean, again, there are literally hundreds, um, but the last chapters in the book of Isaiah. I think are the most helpful, uh, let's say chapters 60, 61, 62, where you see this very, very theme about the exaltation of Israel after their historical uh, career of being despised and rejected is just painted very clearly by the prophet. So, for example, chapter 60 um, begins, let's say, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Mm. And nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Now, isn't it interesting that at the end of chapter 52, we're told that when the servant of God is elevated and, and... lifted up and exalted in the world, it's going to shock. The kings and nations of the world will be shocked. So here in chapter 60, the very beginning, we're told that when the light of God finally shines upon the Jewish people, that nations are going to come to our light and kings to the brightness of our rising. And then in chapter 60, a little bit later on, in verse 14 and 15, And the sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you, and all those who despised you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet, and they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you an everlasting pride, a joy from generation to generation. So you see that this idea of the exaltation of Israel uh, again, after a history of being despised and, aff- and afflicted and rejected, is just something that is corroborated and reinforced throughout the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The idea of Israel being exalted, you see again in chapter 61 of Isaiah, um, in verse 6 and 7, but you will be called the priests of the Lord. You'll be spoken of as ministers of our God. Instead of the shame, you'll have a double portion. Instead of humiliation, They will shout for joy over their portion. That's chapter 61 in Isaiah, verses 6 and 7. Mm -hmm. And then in verse 9 there, their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants will in the midst of the peoples. All who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. It's interesting because your uh, translation uses uh, ministers of God in verse 6. I'm reading along with you in my New King James. It says, but you shall be named priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of our God. Oh, okay. And I'll just share one more passage um, in chapter 62 of Isaiah, verses 2 and 3. And the nations will see your righteousness and the kings your glory. And you'll be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will designate. You'll be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. I mean, again, these are themes that are just uh, echoing throughout the entire Bible. And when Isaiah chapter 52 speaks about the servant being exalted, lifted up and raised very high, that's basically a theme that uh, if we had time, we would find literally dozens and dozens of passages throughout the Mm. Bible. And so uh, the 52nd chapter says, when this exaltation of Israel happens, it's going to totally shock and startle the nations and kings of the world because, again, the, the conventional wisdom throughout history has been that at the end of history, when Jesus returns and Jesus is finally exalted as king of kings, the Jewish people are going to basically be totally shocked. And uh, that's not what Isaiah tells us here. Isaiah says that the, the world is going to be shocked because the way this is going to play out is something that the world just never expected. The world never expected that at the end of history, the Jews will be shown to have been right. Now, the important thing, and this is so critical to understand, is that this passage that we're talking about is a messianic prophecy in the sense that when will Israel finally be exalted? When is this all going to happen? Um, you know, it doesn't happen when, uh, you know, everyone decides to, to invest in high-tech Israel stocks. <laughs> but we're talking here about uh, something that's going to literally change the perspective of the world. 
And when you go through the messianic prophecies of the Bible, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 37, the prophet says, you know, when the temple's been rebuilt, rebuilt in Israel, in Jerusalem, then the world is going to finally get it. And so, you know, this uh, ability for the world to finally break out of their box and to see the real truth, it's only going to happen in the messianic age when mm-hmm. things will become very, very clear. But that's how the end of chapter 52 really sets the stage for chapter 53. We begin by hearing this general statement that at the end of history, Israel is going to break out of its uh, out of its history. Our history has been one of degradation, of of rejection, of persecution, and we're told that at the end, the servant's going to be exalted, lifted up, and raised very high, and this mm. is going to totally shock the nations and kings of the world. Chapter 53, and this is the, the major key to understanding it, you have to really understand who is speaking. And uh, I think often Christians don't think a lot about this question. Uh, they let it sort of slip past them. But the, the chapter here begins with a expression of shock by not an individual, but by a group of people. A group of people are saying in chapter 53, verse 1, who would have believed what we're hearing? Mm. We can't believe it. This is a huge shock. We never expected this. And that's exactly, by the way, what Isaiah said, uh, what God really said in the previous verses. God said that we're going to startle many nations. Why? Because that which they had not, that which they had not been told, they're going to see. And that which mm. they had not heard, they're going to understand, meaning that what's going to happen is not going to be what people were prepared for. They weren't expecting it. And so now here... In chapter 53, the speakers are the nations and kings of the world that Isaiah just painted as people who are going to be shocked and freaked the, out. Um, the, the freaked out, the verse that that reminds me of, and tell me if this is fair, uh, but it pops into my head, uh, Zechariah chapter 8, verse 23, that says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men of every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Now we know. Yeah, I I think that um, you you have a similar passage in Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 19 and 20, where the nations of the world come and they say, You know what, we admit that we've been misled throughout our history. Mm, Um, So things are going to become very clear. And um, what you have... Interestingly, um, is again, uh, you know, so many passages. I think one of the best passages is in the prophet Micha, or Micah, sometimes people pronounce it, chapter 7, mm-hmm. where the, the prophet there says in verses 15 and 16, in chapter 7 of Micha, um, the nations will see and be confounded. They will lay their hands upon their mouths, and their ears shall be deaf. You know, that the, the prophet here paints a picture of people that are totally freaked out and shocked. You know, mm-hmm. you often see, by the way, it's, it's interesting when you see uh, pictures of terrible events. I go back to, to video footage of, of September 11th, and you'll see people mm. just standing there with their hand yeah. over their mouth like, oh my God, I yeah. can't believe what we're witnessing. And so that's what's happening here. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 says, kings will shut their mouths, meaning that that the shock is going to be so intense because, again, it was the it would be the last thing the world ever expects is for Israel to be uh, basically um, justified at the end of history. And so chapter 53, we have to understand this, is messianic, meaning this is not a speech that has been given yet. The prophet is telling us something that's going to happen in the future, in the messianic future, when the Messiah is here and the world has been transformed and Israel has been redeemed. It's mm. going to shock the world. And so chapter 53 is basically, if we're understanding it properly, a speech that's going to be made by the world, by the nations and kings of the world. And it's going to be a speech basically reflecting back on their relationship with the people of Israel over the course of history. Because they, again, have always had a conventional view of their relationship with Israel, Israel's relationship with God, Israel's status in the world, and they're going to come to realize that they were just totally mistaken. So here they're going to express uh, this shock 
and this uh, surprise. Mm. Um, it's interesting, by the way, I would not make a, a major point of this. I think we touched on this last time. But the prophet here um, says that um, this servant um, is seen as hideous, as, um, you know, in verse 14 of chapter 52, his, his form was marred more than any man, his form more mm. than the sons of men. And then uh, in chapter 53, verse 2, we're told that he had no form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should delight in him. Mm-hmm. That the, 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 the servant is portrayed as being someone that was not attractive, that people didn't see. Overlooked. Overlooked, and even actually seen as, you know, to have someone his visage marred really as, dis- as distorted, meaning that um, the servant is seen as hideous and grotesque, and people mm-hmm. would turn away, almost like from a monster. And what's interesting is that uh, if you go historically, all the way back to the Greeks, actually, the people of Israel were seen as not normal human beings. Uh, the way we, we were portrayed in literature and in art throughout history, it's interesting, this is not just a uh, something that happened in Nazi propaganda, but throughout history, going back to the times of the Greeks at least, I mean, it may have gone back before that. We don't have lots of newspapers from back before the Greeks, but uh, you know, we were spoken about as looking different, as being different, as having you know huge noses and huge feet and mm, horrible mm. voices. There was a philosopher recently who wrote a book called The Jew's Body, where he, he basically chronicles how throughout history Jews have been seen as almost not human, and especially when you view uh, the way Jews are portrayed by their uh, most you know, hideous enemies like Nazi literature, Nazi propaganda, mm. or in some Islamic propaganda now, even neo-Nazi propaganda, some of the stuff that came out of the communist era. You know, Jews are portrayed as not being human. We're snakes, we're scorpions, uh, we're vipers, we're uh, pigs. You know, we we are mm. we're just portrayed as not, and and that's how in the, you know the Nazi era we, we were seen as not human because it's easier to exterminate cockroaches. Um, so we we have been seen throughout our history as less than attractive, as even not even human. Um, and it's 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 prophesied, isn't it? I mean, I'm I'm looking now at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 37, and it says, "And you shall become an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among all the nations where the Lord will drive you." Yeah, I mean, you know, the Jew was never seen as you know a paragon of of beauty, um, mm. which is interesting because Jesus was always the exact opposite. You know, in in all of the artwork that shows. Um, how people have seen and imagined Jesus to look. He's always portrayed as beautiful, as um, gorgeous, as, uh, you know, a hunk, an Adonis, you know, as, as someone that's, you know, the, the, almost like a fantasy person. Um, so it's interesting that Isaiah here is describing the servant, you know, in ways which certainly fits the way Jews have been portrayed throughout their history, and sort of doesn't fit with the way Jesus has been seen throughout his, his history. Um, so the, the, the chapter here basically um, has the nations of the world reflecting back how they have seen the Jewish people, and more importantly, how they've related to the Jewish people mm-hmm. um, throughout their history. And here, basically, we're going to see a confession. They are startled in verse, um, chapter 53, um, I think it's verse 1 even, because what are they seeing? They're seeing that the arm of the Lord has been revealed upon the servant. Now, it's interesting that I think in Christian thought, the arm of the Lord is the Messiah. But throughout the Bible, and you know, if you check every single time this phrase is used, um, about God manifesting his holy arm and the arm of the Lord, it always refers to God demonstrating his power, mm. not through power lifting, like going to a gym and picking up the building, but it's always demonstrating his power in saving and preserving and rescuing the Jewish yeah. people from their enemies. Used, used a lot in the, uh, in the story of the Exodus, his, his mighty and outstretched arm. The Exodus is, is one place. You see references in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, where it think it, again it reflects back to the Exodus story, 
And then you have many of the Psalms. In Psalm 89, verse 10, you yourself did crush Rahav like one who is slain. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Mm. Um, in Psalm 98, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. In Psalm 44, for by their own sword they did possess the land, and their own arm they did save them. And your right hand, your arm, and the light of your presence, you did favor them. So you see throughout the Bible, God's arm is always a symbol of his power and might in rescuing his people, the nation of Israel. And mm -hmm. so that's exactly what the people are going to see here, meaning that the elevation of Israel, the, the, the exaltation of Israel, is in part going to be political. You know, we are living in a world today where, you know, as the politicians say, Israel is living in a very rough neighborhood. We're living among, you know, nations who are chomping at the bit to eradicate us. Mm. We're living in a world where it's very dangerous to live in the land of Israel. You know, especially now we're talking about nuclear threats to the land of Israel. So the Bible is saying that, you know, part of the resolution of this tension is going to be through the incredible power that God demonstrates in rescuing the Jewish people. And I think, look, to some extent, we've seen that in our lifetime. You know, I lived through the Six-Day War. Uh, I lived through the Yom Kippur War. You know, we've, many of us have gone through, you know, several modern wars in Israel. And it's hard to really see these events as simply the military might of the Israeli Defense Forces. You know, at mm. some point, people begin to recognize there was something supernatural happening. The total devastation of a large number of Arab armies in six days, it was, it was insane. Or the Yom Kippur War, where we were just at the brink of being exterminated, and then just miraculously, the whole thing turns around. Mm. So, you know, I read a, a history of the Yom Kippur War in 1973, where it was a secular journalist writing this story, and these are the words that he was using. Miracle, miraculous. I mean, he, there was mm. no other way of explaining how this has happened. And so, you know, part of what the prophet here is describing is that the world is going to come to recognize that Israel's very survival um, is through the might of God. And it's going to become clearer. I mean, we haven't seen yet how this is going to play out in the final stages. You know, but we know the Bible speaks about these wars of Gog and Magog. You know, there are plenty of prophetic accounts about great wars that are going to happen right at the end of time. Uh, before the messianic era resolves everything. And so Israel, you know, we're told, could theoretically face tremendous terror and threats. And, uh, you know, we're talk talking in the book of Zechariah of, you know, uh, worldwide armies marching against Jerusalem. So exactly how that's going to play out, we don't know. But mm. at least the Bible paints a picture of Israel facing existential threats to its very existence, and God miraculously redeeming them. And the world is going to take notice of that. And so that's what Isaiah here describes, that the world is going to see God manifesting his holy arm to rescue the Jewish people. And so at the very end of chapter 52, it was the same phrase that was used, all the nations of the world are going to see the salvation of God. Okay? Mm. Something that's going to be actually visible. And then they begin to talk about the fact that, again, you know, these are people that we never expected would amount to anything. Israel, we're told in verse 2 here, uh, grew up before him like a tender plant and is a root out of dry land. I mean, these are conditions where you wouldn't expect tremendous growth. Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly, you know, everyone writes about the fact that today the modern state of Israel was just a desert how many decades ago. And look how... That oh, is it was uh, Mark Twain, wasn't it, who, who um, made some very famous comments on his visit to Israel that it was just a desolate wasteland. Exactly. You know, and, and look what's happened. I mean, it's, it's quite amazing that, you know, this place where, you know, in the 1920s, it was just nothing happening. You know, I, I, I read a story recently where um, Tel Aviv was visited by Winston Churchill in 1926, I think. He was, he was in charge of the British uh, territories, British uh, um, possessions, and he came to pay a visit, and the, the mayor of Tel Aviv you know, was a little bit 
upset because there was nothing there. It was a city that had no trees. They had little saplings that had been planted. And so he sends some people to, this is how the story goes, uproot some mature trees from a nearby kibbutz and he sticks them in the ground on the Rothschild Boulevard in Tel Aviv. There were only four or five streets back then. Mm. And when Churchill came to visit, there's some kids that climbed on top of the trees to get a better view and they toppled the trees over. Oh. <laughs> so <laughs> Churchill says to the mayor, Mayor Dizengoff, he says, you know, the trees need very, very deep roots. Uh, <laughs> so that you know, think about it. Now, what do you have? You have a uh, you know a tiny nation that's so productive and it's so you mm. know uh, producing things that are benefiting the entire world, and it's just uh, it's incredible what's happened there. And I think people realize this. I think people see that something miraculous has taken place. Um, but in verse 2, the, the nations here are speaking, and they're saying, you know, we never expected much to happen here. This was uh, people that grew up out of a dry land, and again, they had no form or comeliness that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should delight in him. Um, one of the things that, you know, I think is important to just reflect about is that Isaiah here is speaking about uh, him. The whole chapter speaks about he and him, the first person, the, uh, the, the singular form of these nouns. And I think it's what causes people to assume that Isaiah is describing one person. An How individual. could you possibly mm. say he's talking about the nation of Israel? It doesn't say them, it says him, and it says he. So the important thing to just bear in mind is throughout the Bible, the people of Israel are described as a singular corporate entity, meaning that it's not unusual in Scripture to refer to Israel as he or as him. I mean, it's interesting that um, in the book of Exodus, which is the very beginning of our history, uh, God says to Pharaoh, Israel is my son. Mm. Not Israel are my children. Israel is my son. Um, the prophet Hosea, in chapter 11, um, again quotes this. When Israel was a child, I loved him, not that I loved them, and I called my son out of Egypt. In Hosea chapter 8, verse 3, Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. Let me throw into the mix uh, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10. You are my witnesses, plural, says the Lord, and my servant, singular, whom I have chosen. Yes, yeah, so you see there that the servant is a plural group. It's the witnesses. So that's a beautiful example where within the book of Isaiah, you see the clarification that the servant is not one person. Hosea chapter 14 um, verses 5 and 6, I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. He mm. will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout. His splendor will be like the olive tree. His fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. So, again, we don't have time to go through all the references. There are hundreds and hundreds. But throughout the Bible, this is actually the norm to speak about Israel not as a group so much, but as an, a corporate individual entity. Um, this is not unusual. But again, you know, to people who read the Bible in English, it does sound strange to read this chapter where the, where the pronouns are in the singular. So we have to just bear in mind that it's, it's not unusual and it's actually quite common for mm. Scripture to speak about Israel as him and as he. And then the prophet says that he was despised and rejected of men, a man of pain and well acquainted with disease. Um, and again, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So, you know, it's interesting that we ask the question, how many times does the Bible speak about the Messiah as despised and rejected? And the answer is never, unless you insist that Isaiah 53 is about the Messiah, but does the Bible ever speak about Israel as despised and rejected? And the answer is yes, all over the place. Mm. Um, so we saw that, you know, chapter 60 of Isaiah speaks about, you know, Israel as being afflicted and despised. The book of Lamentations speaks about Israel as despised in Lamentations chapter 1, verse 11. Israel being despised. Chapter 34 of Ezekiel um, speaks about Israel as being a prey to the nations. Chapter 35 of Ezekiel speaks about everlasting enmity, 
that will be facing the people of Israel. Ezekiel chapter 16, again, the same kind of um, portrait. Isaiah chapter 49, again, a, a beautiful contrast. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people, and he will have compassion on his afflicted. So the Bible speaks about Israel as being afflicted all over the place. And what's even more important to bear in mind is that when you look at the facts on the ground, Jesus was not despised and rejected throughout his entire life. We saw that in the Gospels, he's incredibly popular. But the truth is that the people of Israel, it's not just that the Bible speaks about us as being despised and rejected. That's been our legacy it's mm-hmm. interesting that the, the hatred of the Jewish people has been called the longest hatred, the world's longest hatred. And basically, wherever we've gone throughout our history, uh, we're not liked. And today we live in a world where even when there are, where there are no Jews, they don't like Jews. You know, if you go to mm. certain countries, like you go to, I think I heard that in Japan, some of the leading books there, there are not many Jews living in Japan, are these anti-Semitic uh, diatribes about the Jewish conspiracies that take over the world. You had governments, I think it was the Prime Minister of Malaysia or Manila, I forget which one it was. You know, again, a country there were no Jews there, but they blame all of their problems on the people of Israel. Um, this is just something that's common in the world, that you have a world today where, unfortunately, as we're sitting here right now, the hatred of Jews is increasing, and it's increasing at a very, very frightening pace. It's something that we're almost surprised by. We would have thought that the world would have been cured of this insanity, and yet, no. Uh, we live mm-hmm. in a world today where um, you know, death to the Jews is not something that's uncommon. Um, persecution of Jews, hatred of Jews. So when the Bible speaks about the servant being despised and rejected, that's a description of Israel that is consistently portrayed throughout the Bible, and more importantly, that has been our reality that has been the history of the people of Israel. We have been universally despised and rejected um, over the course of you know three thousand years. It's quite an amazing picture that the prophet has accurately described. And now we come to the key verses, I think, in this chapter, which are really actually difficult to parse. Um, I remember when I saw the. Um, that horrible film, <laughs> Passion of the Christ. Oh, yeah. um, it begins with chapter 53, verse 5 uh, from Isaiah. The whole screen is a blank screen, except for this verse where you know the passage reads, but he was wounded for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Um, I think we mentioned last time that we spoke that that's a mistranslation, mm-hmm. that the, the Hebrew here doesn't speak about the servant's suffering for the sins of anyone, but rather from the sins, from the transgressions. So what happens here, and again, we have to just remember who is speaking. And here it's the nations of the world that are reflecting back on their history vis-a-vis the people of Israel, their relationship to us. And they say, surely our diseases he did bear and our pains he carried, but we considered him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. I mean, that what they're basically saying in verse 4 is that we always assumed that the Jewish people were suffering because God didn't like them too much. And, you know, the church was always very happy to help God punish the Jewish people. Mm. Um, since God doesn't like them, we're going to you know, make God happy by afflicting them and persecuting them. But that was always the conventional wisdom, that the Jews are evil, because the Jews have rejected the truth. The Jews have rejected God's Son. They've rejected God's Messiah. They've rejected the prophet. Um, this, you see this in Islam as well, that the Jewish people are despised because they've rejected the prophet. Um, this has always been the conventional wisdom, that the, the suffering of the Jewish people is their just deserts. They deserve it. It's coming to them because God despises them, and God hates them, and that's what happens to people that God hates. Now, what what do they mean, though, when they say, our diseases he did bear and our pains he carried? Um, in many ways, this is a confession. And it's interesting because throughout the Bible, it's interesting that the scriptures speak about the historical suffering of the people of Israel 
in exile um, uses the imagery as of sickness and wounds. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 17, For I will restore you to health, and I will heal you of your wounds, declares the Lord. Mm. Um, because they have called you an outcast, saying, It's Zion, no one cares for her. Or Hosea chapter 6, verse 1, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. Or in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 26, And the light of the moon will be like the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be like seven times brighter, like the light of seven days. On the day the Lord binds from the fracture of his people and heals the bruise he has inflicted. Or Micha chapter 1, verse 9, For he, her wound is incurable, but it's come to Judah, it's reached the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. So you do have this language um, mm. in Scripture of the suffering of Israel as wound, being wounded, being sick. Um, these are just terms that I think we find throughout the Bible, you know, that that's how sure. a nation in exile is portrayed. But, but here, what the, I, I believe that the nations are coming to recognize is that even though we thought that Israel was getting what they deserved and Israel was suffering because God hated them, I think at this point they're realizing, wait a second, we thought that you know, God is taking his anger out on the Jewish people because they rejected Jesus we have to realize that this speech is being given at a time in history when the nations of the world come to realize the Jews are right for not believing in Jesus because they're seeing now the Messiah has come and it's not Jesus. Mm. And the, the whole theme of this chapter is one in which the nations of the world come to the recognition that the Jews have been right all along. They were right for not believing in Jesus. They were right for not accepting the teachings of Christianity. Mm. And mm. so... What they're trying to do now is come to grips with, well, what was happening throughout this long history that we walked with these people? You know, and I think what they're coming to confess here is that the relationship was not so much that we were the instruments that God was using to punish people he hated, but they're coming to admit now that we ourselves scapegoated these people for our own benefit, meaning that you know, you study Jewish history – and it was very convenient to persecute the Jewish people. First of all, um, you know, when a nation was uh, suffering because of their own ineptitude, their own failed policies, it was always very easy to shift the focus of the people away from the people responsible in the government onto this, you know, uh, mysterious enemy called the Jews. It's, it's their mm. fault. Um, and this always happened. I mean, if you study European Jewish history, you know, the Jews would be expelled, we'd be thrown out of a country because we mm. were the cause of their problems. Ironically, they would invite us back a few years later because the country would fall apart without us. Yeah. <laughs> right. us. But I think that the word that we would use for the relationship is one called scapegoating, where um, by taking out our ineptitude and our f failures and blaming it on the Jewish people and basically taking all of this pent-up energy that people have to want to unleash their frustrations and unleash it at the Jews, I think that's what they're confessing here. They're saying, you know what, they carried our pains and our diseases they, they bared. And, and, you know, they were, we sort of, we very, really happily, you know, put all of our, our problems onto these Jewish people but we didn't feel bad about doing it because we assumed that they were stricken by God. They were, they were mm. basically cursed by God. But now they're confessing in verse 5. They're saying, no, but he was wounded. I Meaning he, the nation of Israel, Israel was wounded from our transgressions. He mm. was crushed as a result of our iniquities. I mean, that we're, we're confessing now that you know, it, it was as a result of our own wickedness that we took out upon these people. That's why they suffered. And so here, we're going to see in the next verse, they say, all we like sheep have gone astray. They're confessing that we were the ones that were wrong. We were the ones that were not in the right. Um, and so there's sort of a confession here. This is what's going to be happening in the future. And th this is, again, part of the general theme of all of the scripture, that in the future, everything is going to be righted. That a world which was not really living in truth is going to come to truth. Um, there's going to be a, a universal rejection of idolatry. There's going to be a universal acceptance of God's teaching from the Torah. 
I mean, this is a, 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 me- a meta-theme, I would call it a meta-theme throughout the Bible, that the world is going to wake up, is going to be a recognition of truth. And mm. here, this is just part of the, what it's going to look like. Um, it's interesting that these are all elements that are repeated throughout the Bible. Um, so again, you see in other parts of the Bible where the nations always thought that the Jewish people were rejected by God. For example, Psalm 94, verses 5 uh, to 7, They crush thy people, O Lord, and they afflict thy heritage. And they have said, The Lord does not see, nor does he care. Does he take heed, the God of Jacob? I mean, that the people of Israel are being persecuted, they're suffering. But God doesn't really care because he doesn't care about them. In Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 17, For I'll restore you to health, and I will heal you of your wounds, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast, saying, It's Zion. No one cares for her. Mm. So again, every element of this big chapter is something that is corroborated um, through the rest of the Bible. Um, You know, this idea that the nation of Israel suffers due to the cruelty and wickedness of the nations this is something, again, that is consistently described throughout the Bible. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 25, the prophet says, Pour out your wrath upon the nations that do not know you, and upon the families who do not call upon your name, for they have devoured Jacob. They have devoured him and consumed him, and have laid waste his habitation. I mean, that, that Jacob is suffering because of these people who really don't know God. Um, Psalm 94, verses 3 to 5. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long will they exalt? They pour forth words, they speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. So, you, again, there are so many dozens of passages in the Bible which speak about the suffering of the Jewish people due to the wickedness of the nations. Now, I should point out one thing here, you know, Clearly, we can't say that the only way to explain the suffering of Israel is because of the wickedness of the nations. That's part of what was going on. The other part we know is that God, if you see in the five books of Moses, we saw it in the chapter you mentioned before, Deuteronomy chapter 28, and mm. in the end of the book of Leviticus. So God promises us that you know, we will um, be punished severely if we don't follow him um, properly. Um, so we know that throughout our history, we wouldn't be in exile if there wasn't something that needed to be corrected. Yep. So it's not simply that the nations are wicked and we bear no responsibility for our fate. I mean, you know, if we were living properly, we wouldn't be in exile. We wouldn't have our temple destroyed. But it's interesting what the prophet Zechariah says in chapter 1, verse 15, is that even though God does have his reasons for uh, chastising the Jewish people. And it says in the book of Deuteronomy, like a father corrects their son, so God will correct us. But God says, I'm very angry with the nations who are at ease, for while I was only a little bit angry, they furthered the disaster. I mean, that the reason God is going to be angry with the nations is not because they persecute the Jewish people. It could be that that's part of what God wanted them to do. You know, the the famous question is asked, why did God get upset with Pharaoh persecuting the Jews? Didn't God say to Abraham that your people will go down to be strangers in a strange land and they're going to be, you know, servants there and they're going to be persecuted and they're going to suffer? So isn't Pharaoh really carrying out the task that God mandated for him? And the answer is that, well, there's two parts to it. Number one, Pharaoh wasn't doing it because he was so interested in serving God. But secondly, God's decree was that the Jews would go down and become slaves and suffer, but not that their children would be cast into the Nile and drowned. I mean, that, that they went too far. They took their, uh, their task and they really went way beyond what the intended um, decree was from God. And that's what the prophet Zechariah says here. It's true I was angry. Um, God says, I'm angry with the nations because God says, I was only a little bit angry with you, the Jewish people. Um, I did want you to be, you know, chastised or chastened by the nations of the world. But look what they did. You know, they, they put you in concentration camps and they exterminated you. That's mm. not what I necessarily intended. 
Um, so we see this theme um, throughout the Bible that um, the Jewish people do suffer, right, as a result of the cruelty and wickedness of the nations of the world. And here, they're going to finally confess this in the book of Isaiah. He tells us basically the speech they're going to give. And they're going to confess and they're going to say, but we like sheep have gone astray. We turned everyone to his own way. And we thought, though, meaning that what Isaiah is saying here is that the nations had thought all along that God has laid upon him, the the nation of Israel, the iniquity of us all, meaning that Mm. we basically thought that the nation of Israel was suffering instead of us. Um, And again, this is, uh, uh, there are so many corroborative passages for this. Um, It would take us two or three nights to go through all of them. Really, yeah. I know I'm being (laughs) quite silent here on the other end of the microphone, but I'm furiously writing notes as you speak. (laughs) I'm just writing all through my Bible. I think maybe what we could do is next week sort of recapitulate this. And there is another spin on what's going on here that I think we could discuss. It's interesting, when you go through the the approaches to what's going on here, it's not one-dimensional, the way this Mm -hmm. confession really is seen. Um, You know, I just presented, I think, which is the simplest one, that Mm -hmm. they're sort of acknowledging that they... uh, This is the view that's taken by the majority, you would say. Well, because it's the simplest one. I think there's a more nuanced one which is more spiritual, that also, you know, it, I'm not sure they're mutually exclusive, by the way. I think that that it's quite possible that there are several things that are going on, going on here at the same time. But I think that what we could do maybe next time is sort of recap this. Because I think it was pretty simple, basically, that you have here a, a speech that's being made by the nations and kings of the world, and they're confessing to, you know, their abusive relationship they've had to the Jewish people because they thought that we were basically they we were on the outs with god maybe what we can do is sort of recap that present another twist in how this can be understood and then finish the chapter i think i think that's an excellent idea seeing that that will take a little bit more time it's probably best that we leave it here we do that next time so it looks like we're going to have an isaiah 53 part three so thank you Thank you to uh, Rabbi Michael Skovac. Rabbi Michael Skovac of Jews for Judaism in Canada. Jewsforjudaism.ca is the website. Jewsforjudaism.ca. Thank you, my friend. And uh, that I tell you what, I've never scribbled so many notes on <laughs> a couple of pages in my um, Bible. That, but that has really kept me very, very busy. And I'm sure the listeners have been uh, doing likewise. So thank you, my friend. Great pleasure to be here again with you. We will continue again uh, this time next week. And until then, dear listeners, be blessed and be set apart by the truth of our Father's word. Shalom. Shalom.